After a benchmark setting past you for global real estate investment, what themes are likely to prevail in 2022? Well, there are five specifically that JLL believes are going to define the market. They are where opportunity beckons and where investors are focusing their strategies as more capital is ploughed into real estate. I speak to two people no better qualified to discuss the shape of things to come, covering industrial real estate, hotels, universities, medical centres, mergers and acquisitions, social and environmental influences and much more. Andrew Ballantyne, JLL's Head of Research in Australia, and Fergal Harris, JLL's Head of Capital Markets in Australia. I'm Rebecca Kent, host of this JLL Perspectives podcast. Just a quick note, this interview was recorded right at the end of 2021, so just keep that in mind with any of the time references in this conversation. Andrew, how have you come up with these themes? So it's a good question. I mean, we spend our whole time looking at the macro factors that impact real estate markets. And it's really through that continuing continual research that we do that it allows us to formulate what we believe are the sort of key themes for investors moving forward. So this year we decided to mix the themes with uh, a range of macro or longer term factors, and then a number of factors which we believe are, are opportunity led. Fergal, how would you describe the year that's been? Yeah, thanks for that. I, I think um, I think if you sat here last year and we looked at the themes of 2021, um, the, the, the volumes that we saw in industrial um, surprised almost all of us. I think that the, the trend and the e-commerce trend that was driving industrial logistics and infill, which, which we had also uh, sort of predicted and talk, talked a lot about, I don't think anybody would have predicted those volumes. And certainly it would have been a brave person to predict um, the yields that are being bandied around in terms of the, the face yields of sales. And there was a fear of rental growth because it was a capital-led uh, pressure on yields, but where's the rental growth? And, and we have seen at the tail of the year rental growth driving uh, land prices. So that was one of the... the issue uh, the areas I look back in the year that that really um, really surprised um, the 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 strength of retail the strength of that that essential and necessity retail um, didn't surprise but the depth of confidence in Australia to buy in domestically um, did surprise I think that was an almost bulletproof asset class and, and arguably had been mispriced on the back of just global retail and retail as a, as a general asset class, not understanding the nuances that exist in Australia. So they're the two that I would, I would pick out. I wasn't at all surprised about volumes in office, but they would be the two that I would say stand out um, in my mind of, of looking back. I think it's a good point you make around that larger end of retail, Fergal, because we did start to see liquidity return to that sector. And there was a lot of confidence around, well, do we actually believe the book valuations, given some of the headwinds that we see within the sector? So seeing a number of significant trades over the second half of the year at those adjusted book values gives us a level of confidence that for most of those large centres, we're pretty much at the trough of the of the asset valuation cycle. And it's been interesting even looking at the rally that we've seen in the listed market uh, for those major shopping centre owners, uh, given that they've been trading at a significant discount to NTA. Last year, investment volumes in Australia and New Zealand at 43 billion Australian dollars 
surpassed the record-breaking 2019 level, but Omicron, the new strain of COVID, is hindering recovery in many areas. What effect do you see it having on real estate, Fergal? I think it will continue to weigh on office uh, if it weighs on any asset class at all. I don't, um, and that and that Omicron has just has got to play out in the first couple of months of next year in any event because we, it's it's a new variant and we need to get some data on 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 what the impact it has on on health services and 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 people's mobility. So I think that continues to have that same tail of a question mark over occupancy and. I think the return to work question has kind of been put to bed. People are back when they can get back, and more and more people that we speak to uh, want to be back in some shape or form. But in terms of, of growth and, um, and what your office space will look like, that could be a, a couple of months before we appreciate what, what the impact of variance has. Um, I don't, internally within Australia, certainly the internal travel is going to have an impact on, on retail and tourism because. Um, retail expenditure, um, when when it's not happening, then there's only savings. So those savings are now over 200 billion, and 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 that will be spent when people start coming back to uh, some sort of normal life or traveling around the, the country more often. And I think tourism will start to benefit uh, from that too in that terms of that spend. So I'm still pretty bullish on office volumes recovering, but I I, I thought it would be without Omicron. I think it would have been. Now and we would have been sort of into our into our stride in sort of February, with uh, with an increase in number of uh, assets coming to market. Thanks, Fergal. So without further ado, let's get into the themes that JLL has identified for 2022. The first one: real estate holding its appeal as investors continue to operate in a high interest rate environment. Andrew, how are interest rate movements going to influence commercial property investment? Bond yields or interest rates have, have essentially trended lower since 1980 through to today. So while there has been little bumps in the road, this is the first time in close to 40 years that we're talking about an uplift in interest rates, not back to where we were around 2006, 2007, where we had Australian government bond yields at five and a half to six, but we are seeing a partial reversion from that ultra low treasury yield environment. So I think ultimately what investors are doing is they're saying, well, we know how we construct a return hurdle for real estate. It's the risk-free rate plus an implied risk premium. What does that mean in terms of an unlevered return? And what we've seen is that investors have retained a degree of discipline. So the, the spread between where bond yields and return hurdles are at the moment are wider than historical benchmarks. So investors were expecting to see a partial reversion in bond yields. So what our view is, is that if we're moving back to an environment of somewhere between two and a half and three percent, an implied market risk premium of 300 basis points for core real estate gets you into unlevered returns uh, expectations of around five and a half to six. And we're fairly comfortable at that type of level. I think the risk for the asset class is if bond yields move beyond the 3% territory, because that's ultimately when risk premiums start to get crunched. You can start to make a case that real estate looks expensive in that type of environment. And real estate can look expensive if you believe in the income growth story. And at the moment, the income growth story is very strong for industrial and logistics, probably less so for the other sectors. What would be interesting, and I'm going to muse this for the, for the purposes of our podcast and maybe the next one, is to look at what was the broad money supply doing 
when bond yields were um, at 5%, because we've clearly seen through quantitative easing an enormous amount of printed money, which, which by definition, any schoolboy economist will tell you, should drive down the price of that money. And so those bond yields may have a natural cap simply because there is so much dollars and hard uh, Western currency, US dollar, pound, euro, and, and, and uh, Aussie dollar in the market. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like in terms of where we think a bond yield ceiling might be when our, our bond rates are not rising because of a, an inherent risk in Australia. And Fergal, what are Australia's unique factors when it comes to real estate investment in the context of interest rates creeping up across the globe? Well, firstly, I think we're we're relatively small. So so small is beautiful when you when you consider what the you know the impact on 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 the global economy can be. Um, Australia has a has a very very strong growing and will have a very strong growing immigrant uh, uh, population when the borders reopen. And as I say, there's a lot of pent up um, savings in the economy, and our debt to GDP ratio is approximately. Andrew can tell me the exact numbers, but about half that of the of the U.S., um, which 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 all of which is is puts us in a very very strong position relative to an economy of a highly complicated economy in, and uh, like the U.S. or even uh, the eurozone, uh, which which has which is not a homogenous political uh, market, and um, so. Um, I, I think I think the, the similar themes. I mean, interest rate rises globally are going to be caused again by inflationary pressures. That seems to be the the watchword in, in the U.S. by the Fed. So uh, and for similar reasons, um, and we've seen some low job growth in the U.S. Of, of late, but that that will that will not continue to be the case into 2022. So I think everybody's experiencing the same thing, and and there seems to be a continuing theme globally of a lack of product. So clearly, there's been a lot of money um, chasing a lot of real estate over the last few years, um, and that will, and we, we don't expect that to change, e even with a potential increase in interest rates in our in our major markets. Okay, thanks, Fergal. Let's move on to theme number two, being ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Corporate Governance, factoring more heavily in investment decisions. How's that, Andrew? Part of the challenge with the social aspect, Beck, is it's, it's actually very wide and broad. So if we think about, say, the office sector specifically, there's a lot more discussion around, you know, the, the fundamental health of buildings. And one of the aspects that we're hearing a lot of discussion around is the, the fresh air provision within buildings, because ultimately there's been research that shows it reduces absenteeism and improves mental well-being of uh, the occupants of the building. And a lot of that is covered by uh, the Well Institute and Well Ratings. What I think is even more interesting is how we start to think about the requirements of a diverse workforce. So we're now starting to hear greater discussion around, does the building have the inclusion of a prayer room? Uh, is there gender-neutral end-of-trip facilities to account for a diverse workforce? So that's going to be really interesting to see how those aspects uh, evolve as we move forward. The other area, which is one that I'm quite passionate about, is I've always taken the view that real estate turns its back on its neighbourhood. A large part of the social aspects is how does real estate actually integrate with its neighbourhood and how does it actually provide additional third space, not just to occupants of the building, but also to the broader community as well. So while some of that is governed by planning, we're starting to see 
new developments actually think about the integration with the neighborhood. And we're seeing examples of you know, amphitheaters or additional steps put in where people can actually sit there and have an informal meeting, they can have lunch, they can have a cup of coffee. So I think that's going to be interesting from a new development perspective. When we start to think about investors, it's very much around who are the occupants of the building. So do the occupants have, you know, very strong political views? Are they actually operating in an industry which is which is a high pollutant? So previously, the, the, the focus was very much on the quality of the covenant. You know, what's the credit rating? Uh, what's the term? There's now a lot more discussion around, you know, what does that particular user, what activities do they undertake? What views do they actually hold? And that fits in with a broader social bucket in terms of how investors are actually thinking about their, their real estate investment moving forward. And from a future-proofing perspective, developers have got to be a step ahead of ESG demands unless they want to be refurbishing every few years. Thanks, Andrew. Moving on to theme number three, healthcare. It's to feature more prominently in portfolios. Why is that? So the, the reason we're looking pretty closely at healthcare is, is quite simple. If you look at the growth sectors of the Australian economy and the growth sectors for mature economies, healthcare is one of those key sectors. So its share of economic output is going to increase over the next 10 years. If you look at it from an employment perspective, the number of people in mature economies that work in that broader healthcare sector is going to increase. So ultimately, investors like to invest into, into growth sectors. So the healthcare sector immediately gets attention due to the fact that it has significant growth drivers. And we know what they're related to in particular around demographics, uh, aging of population, the emergence of health tech, uh, et cetera. So the challenge with healthcare is there is a whole diverse range of, of, of subsectors that sit under healthcare. We're starting to see more healthcare organizations actually occupying office space that's been a significant growth driver. So you can actually get exposure to healthcare by actually investing in the traditional office sector, but having the tenant that's in that building being related to healthcare. Where I think you're starting to see more of the capital try and understand the stories around private hospitals, uh, the story around medical centers, and then as an extension of healthcare, uh, the emergence of the life sciences sector. So ultimately, each of these sectors has their own unique characteristics. Uh, but what we're finding is that investors are trying to work out how they can get exposure to those sectors, either through development or through the investment in established assets. If you take the life sciences sector specifically, you know some of the key points around the investment rationale are you're getting exposure to very strong covenants. Uh, you tend to find that life sciences organizations take very long lease terms. Uh, and the other one that's quite interesting from a real estate perspective is those organizations make significant investment into their real estate is that you tend to find there's very high barriers to exit for life sciences organizations. So they tend to stay in the real estate for a significant period of time. That's been our experience uh, of what we've looked at in the US. And from an investment perspective, that makes it very attractive because what might be an initial seven to 10 year lease in reality, is probably going to be a 15 to, to 20 year tenor within that asset. The only thing I'd add to that on healthcare and life sciences in the Australian context for the time being is scale. 
Um, and, and a lot of our investors, when you consider this relative size of the office market or retailer logistics markets, um, it's, it's, this, it's the scalability of that growth. And I think a lot of the investors are getting in now because in the next couple of years, that's going to scale up. But currently, it's, it's quite difficult to build scale. So you have to have a long-term view as an investor of getting into healthcare um, in all of its broad forms. But I, I fully agree with the with Andrew, I think it's going to be about medical centres and co cooperatives, and um, um, you know that on the private side, and and of course the life sciences for sure. Even as a consumer of medical services, I can see how quickly facilities and buildings are already changing. So moving on to our fourth theme: COVID-impacted sectors, including student accommodation hotels, large shopping centres. They all got pretty heavily whacked at the peak of the pandemic, but they're making a comeback, Andrew. So, yeah, I think it's been interesting to look at those COVID-impacted uh, sectors. And the one that really jumps out to me is having a, a strong rebound potential is around the student accommodation market. There's clearly strong growth and, and appetite for, for education. We've clearly got strong growth in student numbers from emerging economies such as, as India and China. And we certainly do believe that Australia is very well placed to, to capture a, a growing part of that market. I mean, there's a number of reasons of, of why we're attractive. Uh, one of the key ones to me is just the quality of our institutions. So the, the Times newspaper out of the UK does a global ranking on universities. And Australia scores very highly in that ranking. And New Zealand also has a number of institutions in the top 300. So ultimately, for me, education is very much about you know, the, the, the brand or the, the uh, provider that, that you go to, which ultimately sets you up for your career. And Australia and New Zealand are very well placed in that context. It's also been interesting to note that while we have pivoted towards uh, an online delivery model, uh, looking at the student enrollment and commencements data for Australia, we're seeing growth out of, out of countries like India. And I do think that's going to be a significant growth market for us moving forward. And we're going to see greater uh, diversity of students by country of origin coming into, coming into Australia. Uh, early Fergal briefly touched on the hotel sector. The hotel sector through COVID has been, has been bifurcated. We've actually seen regional uh, areas perform quite strongly because while there's a view that Australia has been impacted by border closures and tourists not being able to come to Australia, Australians have actually been vacationing within their own within their own country and in numbers that we've we've never seen before. Australia normally has a significant export of of people uh, into into the international tourism market. So ultimately, people have been vacationing in those regional areas and they've performed quite strongly. Clearly, for the CBD and the inner city hotel market, we're looking for the return in business travel and the return in international tourism, which actually really stimulates that sector. And the last area that we sort of highlighted was around that larger end of retail. Uh, as we touched on earlier in the podcast, we've certainly now started to see a reduction in the bid-ask spread. We've started to see greater liquidity for those centres. Some of the centres that we've seen trade ultimately have a pathway towards a mixed-use future. So they could potentially see new development, which could be built to rent, it could be office, it could be hotel, it could even be a healthcare or a medical-related use. 
And for part of that larger end of retail, that's clearly going to be a, a thematic moving forward. Speaking about larger sized property, let's discuss the mergers and acquisitions happening across real estate at the moment. That's been driven by investors aspiring towards more scale, but also the need to bring specific types of expertise into their fold. Fergal, tell us more. You're absolutely right. And we spoke about it earlier, the wall of capital that is around the world looking to deploy into real estate um, generally as a percentage of, of, of overall portfolios of major German pension funds or major US and Canadian pension funds is, is rising and that gives rise to greater appetite for scale. And with regard to M&A, if you have a REIT trading at a significant discount to NTA, and I'll come back to significant in a moment, then you're buying that real estate implied at a discount. You are, you are, you are by P2P, by public to private, you are getting access to underlying real estate um, at, a, at, a, at a discount because your share price doesn't reflect the equity value or the, or the asset value of your underlying assets. And because you are a REIT, it's highly transparent and it's very easy to make the assessment as to what is in is in your balance sheet. Um, now, significant discount is significant uh, because there's costs associated and there's premiums to be paid in order to close out uh, various shareholders. Um, but I, I have no doubt that there is a, it is it is much it, it, there will be undoubtedly M and A uh, activity because of because of that need to build scale exactly as you've said. Um, I, funny enough, I don't think we're going to see a lot of M and A in the in the fund and managed space. We'd see a lot of recaps, and we'll see um, um, LPs be swapped out and swapped back in. But it's unlikely that you'll see sort of the consolidation on the private side. But I think it's more likely going to be if you're trading at a significant discount, and that's sort of fifteen percent plus. And uh, even even ten percent would be on the on the on the cost. I think you are an M and A target. Thanks, Fergal. Industrial and logistics real estate. To make a fluid segue into the final theme is to shift to infill warehouses. These warehouses are a fair bit smaller than large distribution centres, which can be around fifteen thousand to twenty thousand square metres. And they're also located much closer to population hubs. And this shift is a response to the demand for goods to be delivered more quickly, I presume. Andrew? I think it's a good point. I think we're experiencing in Australia what they've seen in the UK and the US, which is essentially the instantaneous delivery model. And if you're actually going to execute on that model, you have to be very close to where your customer is located. So one of the benefits of being an analyst in Australia is we often see these trends actually emerge in other mature economies first and then we try and look at them through an Australian and a New Zealand lens. So if we look at the, the urban or the infill story in the US, that has been very strong. We've seen a number of investors actually build scale within that sector. It's often private equity investors as first movers, and then they've actually sold those portfolios to more passive pension capital. So I think we will see a similar observation here in Australia. I think the challenges are is trying to understand what locations work best for this thematic. So we've been starting to do a little bit of work that we've yet to publish and saying that if we look at areas with a very high number of people aged between 20 and 40, with high degree of educational attainment and above average income levels, they're the areas where the instantaneous delivery model is most relevant. So ultimately, we need to work out where those demand drivers are based on that analysis and then where the existing product is to meet that 30-minute delivery window.
And that concludes our journey through JLL's five themes for real estate investment in 2022. Any last word on the future of real estate investment for Australia and New Zealand? It'll be more diverse and there'll be significant rebound in volumes um, and capital will be uh, more discernible and, and foreign, more foreign capital. Andrew? Similar to Fergo, you're going to see a diverse range of capital sources competing for product across the risk spectrum. Australia and New Zealand are beneficiaries of two major themes. Firstly, higher allocations to real assets. And if you look at recent surveys, most institutional investors are still underweight real estate. And the bigger story is the portfolio tilt towards Asia Pacific. Recent surveys of Western European and North American investors show that they're becoming more comfortable with investment into Asia Pacific, but they tend to start their investment in, in Australia or New Zealand, Japan or Korea. So we're very much a beneficiary of uh, additional inbound investment into the region. Superb. All right. Thank you, Andrew Ballantyne and Fergal Harris. You can download the full JLL report covering the five investment themes at jll.com.au in the Trends and Insights section. I'm Rebecca Kent. This is the Perspectives podcast. Thanks for listening.